Listening Dog Media. DJ. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. How to DJ. The thing about music where it can just give you goosebumps. That that's one of my favourite things to play. Being a radio on DJ was ten times better than that dream becoming true. It was just ridiculous. It, I, I couldn't believe it. Dream. It's not so much the act; it's the song. So it really comes down to the song. So it could be anyone and you hear that track and you go, wow, I really really love love that that track. track. A podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. And for this episode, a DJ who's presented on Radio 1. Like, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was in the studio in Egton House. John Peel came in with a glass of red wine for me, which was great. He said this will relax the nerves. XFM. The early days, the first year in XFM was was the most fun, the most, I can't believe we're getting away with it. Oh no, hang on, we haven't got away with it. And now, Absolute Radio. Paul was keen for me to do another show and he said, I'm going to create a show. You're going to do a request show. And I was like, okay. Claire Sturgis, welcome to How to DJ. Thank you, Chris. I'm very, very happy to be here. We've never actually spoken like this, so I'm very excited. No, that voice though. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> it's not all that, Chris, honest. It's not all that. <laughs> oh, it is. Did you always want to be on the radio? No. I had no idea that it really existed as a job. I listened to the radio, but it was never something I thought I could do as, as a job, get paid to do, to, to make a, a livelihood out of. So no, absolutely not at all. <laughs> so how did you get into it? Oh, Chris, it's a long story. I have to go back a bit further. I didn't go to university. I did my A-levels at Salisbury College of Technology, next door to the art college, where I really wanted to go, but couldn't because I wasn't quite artistic enough. Hung out with all the art students, finished my A-levels, didn't go to university because people like me just didn't back then. I mean, I wasn't guided that way. So I thought I need to get a job. I worked for a local newspaper. I worked for a sports car firm. I did secretarial work, filing, didn't love it, walked out of my last job and thought, I just don't know what I want to do. I didn't want to stay in Salisbury. I loved music. I thought, I'm going to go and live in London. I'm going to go and live in London and work in London. So I I literally wrote a letter. And this, this is absolute truth. I wrote a letter to the BBC. Dear BBC, can I come and work for you, please? Kind regards, Claire Sturgis. Literally, and, and within within a week, I, I had a reply saying, come up for an interview as a filing clerk at BBC Enterprises on Wood Lane. And I got the job. So within two weeks of me writing to the BBC, dear BBC, can I have a job, please? I was an assistant. I was a filing clerk to a secretary to the head of production at BBC Enterprises, which was just down the road from Television Centre. And I I found myself a little box room in East Finchley and worked there for a year and literally had the time of my life working. This is late 80s, early 90s, working for the BBC, which back then was just, I mean, my parents were so happy. Yes, she works for the BBC, you know. No one knew what I did. Didn't matter. I worked for the BBC. But of course, on a Wednesday night at Television Centre, you had Top of the Pops. So we would finish work at five o'clock, go down to the BBC bar at Television Centre and hung out with all the Top of the Pops artists. I literally had the time of my life for a whole year. And then after a year, 
of working at the BBC, you were allowed then to apply for other jobs within the BBC. And this job came up saying radio production assistant for Radio 1. And of course, we all knew Radio 1. So I thought, I'll have a go at that. Never in a million years would I have... I had not worked in radio. I listened to radio. I loved music. That's all I could offer. I was at the Glastonbury Festival... And I got back from the Glastonbury Festival, which, of course, wasn't broadcast by the BBC back in the old days. My flatmate said, oh, you had a phone call? You got to go in for an interview? I was like, oh, OK. And I got, <laughs> I got given the job. But one of the questions was, who's your favourite DJ? John Peel. What music do you like? I said, well, I've just been to Glastonbury and I quite like the Godfathers because I've seen them at the, at the Town and Country Club, as it was in Kentish Town that week. And they gave me the job as Simon Bates's production assistant. More fool them. <laughs> and that's how my love of radio started as a production assistant for Simon Bates. And what do you remember about your first day? <laughs> oh, God, it was horrific. So at my first day, I walked in. Simon Bates wasn't in the building. He and his producer, Jonathan Ruffell, were doing their Round the World Challenge for Oxfam. This was in the summer of 1989. So I walked into an empty studio that was being run by the DJ Mike Reed. So I was working for Mike Reed that morning and Simon Bates, who was on a ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean or something, doing some random outside broadcast. And I spent the rest of the afternoon in the ladies' loo in tears, thinking, what am I doing? I have no idea. I think I, I got the job through my charm when in reality, I had no idea how to work on a major daytime show on Radio 1. But I winged it, thanks to Fergus Dudley, who was producing in London at the time, and Kent and Allen, with their help, I managed to just about keep us all on air. And that's where my love of radio began. Lovely Fergus. Yeah. So what was the day-to-day -day job working on Simon Bates' show? Day-to-day, -day, a production assistant. It's not what a broadcast assistant would be now. It was, very, it was, it was slightly more admin-based, but of course, the job it, it is what you make it to be. So I, I made sure I had as much fun as possible. So day to day, again at eight o'clock. I mean, we all worked off vinyl back then. So make sure all the vinyl records were in order and a few CDs. He had his DJ box full of all the music and make sure the studio was right, get him his coffee, his toast. We had a, an endless supply of guests coming in and out from Mariah Carey to the Pet Shop Boys to Anthony Hopkins. To, I mean, just in and out all the time. So I was constantly looking after famous people, reading the R-Tune letters and doing whatever Fergus Dudley, the producer, needed me to do. And then going out every single night to gigs across London. I mean, it was non-stop. I remember the then, was he the controller? Roger Lewis. Head, head of Radio 1, sent me a letter once saying, you really need to slow down and stop working so hard. We're a bit worried about you. I was like, no, no chance, mate. I'm literally having the time of my life. I will never stop doing this. And I was happy and content working on a daytime show on Radio 1. I mean, I don't know if I did it right or, or that's how you're supposed to do it. I just, you know, had fun and made sure Simon had everything he needed. Likewise with Fergus, that's all you can do, you know, and learnt, learnt along the way, learnt how to edit on, you know, old reel-to-reels, learnt how to edit, learnt how to interview, learnt how to set the studio up, learnt how, how it all worked. And through that, Simon put me on air one morning because I'd been out to see a band and I was so excited about it. He said, you need to talk about this, love. 
to open the mic and and I became a bit of a regular fixture on his show reviewing music and books. I had a book review as well. There you go. So, um, yeah, so my, my appearance on air appeared sort of sometime in the early 90s. And then how did that turn into your own show? I have no idea. I mean, I remember what happened. I had no desire to be like, oh, my God, I love this. I enjoyed being on air. I enjoyed talking to Simon. Mark Goodyear, who, again, was also an amazing mentor, he took a month off the evening session and they decided rather than get someone to cover the whole thing, they would give each of us a week to do a show. So Steve Lamack did a week, Joe Wiley did a week, I did a week, and Richard Easter, who was the comedy writer on the Steve Wright show, did a week. So we all got a week to do the evening session, which again was just, and Peel came in with a glass of red wine for me, which was great. He said, this will relax the nerves. And that was my week. Thank you very much. And then... I don't, know, I don't know what the time frame was, but a few months later, Tommy Vance announced that he was leaving Radio 1 to go and launch Virgin Radio. And the controller, Johnny Beerling at the time, called me in and asked me if I'd like to do The Rock Show. <laughs> I was like, are you joking? Yes. Things like that just don't happen, do they? So, yes, I would love to. Thank you very much. I had a, a, a few weeks handover with Tommy on air, sort of learned how to do it, learned how to use the studio properly. And then Joe and Steve got offered the evening session when Mark Goodyear left the evening session. So within like a few months, you know, three of us suddenly had our own shows, which was just ridiculous. So it was as lucky as that. Right place, right time. And ever since then, there's always been a little bit of me that's a little bit of imposter syndrome because I didn't come through student radio. I didn't come through local radio. I literally was enjoying my life working in radio but suddenly there I was on air. So yeah, it just happened. Right place, right time. What did it feel like being on Radio 1 then? I don't know if I really, now, now I'm thinking, what? I mean, it was great. It was fun. I was surrounded by my friends because I'd I'd worked there already for three years. So I was surrounded by friends and great supporters, people who were good to me. And it was just, it was amazing. And again, I mean, you know what it's like, you know, working with all the record labels as well. Back then, of course, we had free choice. So we were inundated by record labels, by artists, by bands, always want to take us out, going to gigs, please play my song. So I had, it, it was amazing. It was, and I can't say it was a dream come true because it wasn't my dream, but I knew that I was possibly one of the luckiest people in the world. And I did appreciate that. It was, a, it was unbelievable, Chris. That's what it was like. It was unbelievable. One of those pinch me moments, but it was real. You were there at Radio 1 when the famous axe got wielded by by Matthew Bannister and Trevor Dan. What was the atmosphere like in the building at Radio 1 at that time? It wasn't very nice. It was horrible, in fact. You know, I mean, again, with the benefit of hindsight, it, it was dealt with terribly. I'm not saying that, you know, Changes need to happen and change always needs to happen. It should be gradual. It should be organic. You know, wielding an axe like that is just horrible. It's it's power play. It's brutal. It's unfair. It was very unpleasant. Yeah, it wasn't nice at all. And I remember, I mean, oh, just thinking about it makes me feel sick. DLT. He obviously resigned on air. They put me in his place for about six weeks. So I was doing weekend lunchtimes. 
before Danny Baker came along. And I mean, the backlash against me was horrific. I was even, oh God, just this is awful, on the front cover of the Evening Standard on the, the day of my first show or the day before my first show, Claire Who. On the first edition of the Evening Standard, there was a picture of me, Claire Who. Luckily, on later editions, they replaced me with Madonna. But I think my mother still has that copy of that Evening Standard. It was horrible, horrible. But it kind of had to be done. Otherwise, <sighs> Radio 1 just would never grow, never move. They had to do it, but it was handled horrifically. And how did you come out of it all? Well, I mean, I, I was fine because, you know, I was, you know... I was one of the young ones, you know, so we were okay. And, and it was, once the dust had died down, it, it was quite exciting to be part of. I stopped doing the rock show. So I went on to overnights then and occasional weekend breakfast. And I loved the overnight show at Radio 1 for a, a, about sort of two years. I had a great time on that, even though the, the, oh, it's hard doing overnight radio. It's tough on your own. But I love that. I love the little community that we built up. But by then, of course, XFM was starting to bubble around. So, yeah, by then I was already thinking, oh, maybe there is life outside. Because I mean, where do you go when you're at Radio 1? Where do you go from there? Before you joined XFM, you did get to present Top of the Pops a couple of times, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And they have recently been aired on BBC Four. I really thought, I genuinely thought when they got to the 90s on BBC Four, they would cut me out because, you know, don't bother with her. The reason I got to do Top of the Pops was because I just started the rock show. So I was a Radio 1 DJ and Top of the Pops was being produced then by Rick Blacksell, who I used to work with at Radio 1. He used to produce the breakfast show before he left to do Top of the Pops. So he just phoned me saying, Sturge, do you want to do Top of the Pops? I was like, yeah, all right. I'd never done TV in my life. Are you insane? Yeah, so I did it twice. People have said to me, why only twice? I said, well, why do you think? <laughs> but um, <laughs> having said that, I think he was going down the route of getting more sort of celebrities to come and do it. So I think the Radio 1 DJ doing Top of the Pops was sort of, you know, on the wane. I did it twice. And again, the best, best experience of my life. It was great. I mean, looking back, I'm just like, oh my God. God, it looks appalling, but it was great. Who was on? We had Blur doing Park Life. Hello, what? Drinking in the in the bar with them afterwards was amazing. Nena Cherry, oh, she was amazing. We had at the Pogues with Johnny Depp, which was just and Kate Moss came as well, so that was fun hanging out with her. Who else? Wigfield Saturday night. It was great. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, the best bit I had. It was getting makeup, getting your makeup done, being led by the hand by the floor manager to your next position. You know, I was so rubbish, though, Chris. I mean, I had to the retakes we had to do because I'd I'd cock it up, you know. And you can't just go, oh, try that again. It's like reset, Re everyone reset, cameras reset, band reset, audio reset, everyone reset. She needs to do it again, and then I get it wrong again. Everyone has to, I mean, it was just appalling, but great fun. XFM followed soon after. Yeah. So XFM were, they had their RSLs, their, their sort of months long restricted licenses that would, they would have it a month at a time. And they were going for their FM license and they, they lost out to Virgin. 
And then eventually they won their FM license in London, which I was so happy for them because I, I know how hard they'd worked. And again, didn't even cross my mind that I would ever work on a station like that. But they they contacted me. It was all very secret, secret squirrel. They came in sort of via Radio 1 because they had a mole at Radio 1 who was also working there at the same time. Would you like to come and meet Sammy Jacob at a secret location in central London? I mean, yeah, I'll come and have a chat. I think, to be quite honest, they came to me because Marianne Hobbs didn't want to go back to XFM. She was happily at Radio 1 then. So I think they wanted Marianne. They asked me instead when they couldn't get Marianne. And I decided to go for less money. My parents, who were so happy I worked for the BBC, were devastated that I was leaving the BBC. But no, I went and it was less money. It wasn't, you know, secure by any means. But again, I was, I was, I was a music fan, not so much a radio fan. I was a music fan. And to me, XFM represented the music I loved. So I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any mortgage, didn't have a, any kids. Didn't, did, I had no responsibility. So I thought, well, this is the time to jump ship and leave Radio 1 and go and launch this new radio station, which it, in the benefit of hindsight was the best thing I ever did. Because at Radio 1, I knew that I was very much an evenings and weekends girl and, and I was happy with that. But but XFM just offered me a daytime show, which again, you know, I'm not a fan of, of daytime. I do like my evenings and weekends, as I've now discovered, but it just offered me the chance to play incredible music that I would never get the chance to play. Work with like-minded people. Radio One were good about it. Andy Parfit took me out for lunch to Windows on the World to try and convince me to stay, which I was like, mate, why didn't you say this last year, you know? And yeah, they were good. And I and I kind of assumed they would put me on gardening leave, but no, they made me work until the very last day of my contract. So I was, you know, I was happily on air and then I had a week off and then I started XFM. So it, it was all nicely handled. They gave me a lovely BBC record box, one of those really old fashioned BBC record boxes as a, as a leaving present. And off I went to XFM and best decision I ever made. I think best decision ever. You stayed for 10 years at X. Who, who was on with you? So we launched, I mean, it's, it's a famous story. We launched in September 97, the day after Diana died. So we, we had to go through all that. But the launch team was myself and Gary Crowley, Ian Camfield and Paul Anderson, Eric Hodge on breakfast. And of course, our head of speech, you might have heard him, Ricky Gervais and his assistant, Stephen Merchant, they were head of speech. What does head of speech do? He, he was supposed to provide us with link material. So what's on in London, you know, interesting London stories, you know, it's, content never happened, but he would come in on the show and, and just do it for us and try and put us off, make us laugh. So yeah, so that, that was the team who launched it with Sammy Jacob. I mean, again, we really didn't know what we were doing. We were all music fans. We had a love of music and a love of radio, but as to how radio works, Truly, I, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> Thank goodness. DJ. DJ. Ten years there and then NME Radio came along. Yeah, so, so what happened... And again, as, as you know, XFM got bought by Capital and there was a big cull. I stayed on, moved to the evening show, 
it was terrible for a few months, but then Andy Ashton came in and, and it got really good. Ricky came back to do occasional weekend shows and I had very many happy years on the XFM evening show playing great music. Nigel Harding was my producer who would go on to eventually be head of music at Radio One and he just working for him and his music vision was a delight. So again, working with passionate people, it, it was amazing. And then I, I left XFM. It, it got bought again. Well, Capital got bought by GCAP and, and people came in who, you know, the vision went and I wasn't walked out of the building, but I, I think I decided, you know, it wasn't for me anymore. But then Sammy came knocking on my door again saying, oh, I'm starting a new radio station, NME Radio. It's going to be just like XFM, but better because we've got the NME. It's going to be amazing. Come and join us. So I was like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. And again, had a great year, but that coincided, unfortunately, with the massive crash and all the money went. So that lasted for about a year. But that was fun, actually, working at the Blue Fin building with the magazine. So having access to all these incredible journalists and again to, you know, artists and bands who wanted to feature on, on the magazine and on the radio station. And again, working with like-minded people, playing great music. So that was good. That that lasted for about a year. And then after that, I thought to myself, do you know, because it just stopped one day, they had to sort of switch it off. After that, I thought, well, I, I don't know if there's anything else in radio that I can or really want to do. So I kind of happily and was quite content to say, do you know, I think I'm done with radio now. And I think radio's done with me. I don't know who else would want to employ me. Heart did ask. <laughs> can you believe it? I don't know why they do that. I think they confused me with another Claire because they started talking about, oh, my, my kids. And I was like, no, no, I don't have children. I don't know. Um, I think you think I'm someone else. But they got me to do a demo. And, and I said, I, I really don't think I'm the person for you. And they were shocked. <laughs> I said, no, really. So um, I quite happily for about 18 months sort of focused on my voiceovers and other little bits and pieces I was doing. And I was fine with that. Absolutely fine. Is that when you got the Sky voiceover? <laughs> the Sky voiceovers came during early, early XFM. I mean, I was the voice of Sky One for about a good few years. Sky One during the, the Simpsons, the ER, the Friends era. So that was a long time ago. And I've been part of Sky. So Sky One, then Sky Cinema, Sky Movies, now Sky Cinema. And now most probably most recognisable, I'm the, I'm the voice of warning. I, I, I'm the warning voice for you on Sky. So any Sky show that we're concerned might, you know, might disturb your delicate little ears, I will come on and warn you about its content. My favourite being, I think Game of Thrones was probably had the most, the most warnings. I mean, a long, long list from bad language to nudity to grotesque deaths. I mean, yeah, what a, what a warning list that was. Well, I have to say, Succession gets quite... Uh, quite meaty as well in the old warnings. You said until, so you were about to, I guess, lead into how you got got on Absolute Radio. Yeah, well, that, it was interesting because I, I truthfully had made peace with the fact that I wasn't going to work in radio anymore. And, and I was quite happy with that. And it's funny because it took a while because radio, I think, it is your identity. Radio, I mean, you must know what it's like because you've worked it. You know, radio is your identity. But I had made peace, peace with it. Part of my voiceover gigs, I, I was the voice of Planet Rock, which was great. So I was going into Bauer once a week to do their trailers and, and their, their idents, owned by Bauer. 
Bauer then bought Absolute. So there was a huge, a massive transition for Bauer. They all went to Golden Square. So suddenly I found myself going into Golden Square to do my voiceovers of Planet Rock. And I bumped into a couple of, you know, old colleagues who said, oh, you should you should come to Absolute. And I said, do you know what? I, I, I think I'm done with radio now. So I kind of went, no, thank you. But then Paul Sylvester asked to take me out for a drink and we went and went and just had um, a juice together around the corner in Carnaby Street. And he basically talked me into joining Absolute, just do one show a week, just do the, the rock party because Leona was transitioning to a daytime show. Russ Williams was leaving and she was going to be doing daytime and her beloved rock party w- was kind of up for grabs. And I think they, they were keen to keep it, but... I mean, you've spoken to Leona, so you know how loved and adored she is by the absolute listeners. And I think they were like, who do we give the rock party to? Give it to Sturge. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I was like, "Okay, I think I'd like to do it. So it was all very like, well, just come and have a few. See, see how you get on almost instantly. I mean, they're a great group of people. And I I think if it hadn't been for the people, I probably wouldn't have stayed because I, I, I was... I was happy with my radio career, but it was the people. Am I right in thinking, do you even know the answer to this, I wonder, that Absolute Radio got its name? I think Clive Dickens maybe came up with the name and it was because AB made it first on the the DAB dial? It was Clive Dickens who came up with the name and and I don't know Clive very well, but knowing enough about Clive, yes, I, I think that is absolutely correct. And of course, I mean, why, you know... Of course, he was thinking ahead, digital radio, you know, want to be number one on that dial. Of course, a certain vodka company weren't too happy about it. I think there was a few (laughs) little backwards and forwards going there. Here's a challenge for you, Claire. Yeah. Can you name all the shows that you do on Absolute now? Yeah, yeah. I do a lot. And I do a lot of cover as well. So I do weekday mornings on, on Absolute Classic Rock one of our digital stations. I do Friday night 80s. I do the Classic Rock Party. And my beloved request show, which we started just after I started Absolute Radio, Paul was keen for me to do another show. And he said, I'm going to create a show. You're going to do a request show. And I was like, okay, which was great. And I love it. And so, yeah, so I do weekends, lots of cover and Absolute Classic Rock morning show. So yeah, there's a few. Paul, um, I can sense how happy you are. He he really does love to look after his DJs, doesn't he? Do you know, it's I've never had really bad experiences in radio, but I have had experiences and worked for a handful of people who have been absolute bullies. And I mean, to this day, you know, I'll, I'll never mention them, but, you know, some I've worked for some horrific people, but luckily I've been able to navigate my way through. And it's just nice to work for someone who's, almost normal, who just wants to make great radio. And to make great radio, you have to make sure the right people are part of the team and you have to make sure that team works well together. And you have to kind of be nice to people, you know. And if if you have to deliver bad news or do things that aren't particularly nice, you know, there's, there's ways of doing it. And I think Paul and the rest of his team are, are genuinely decent people. And it doesn't take much, does it, Chris, to be decent in life? But my experience over the years in radio, there have been some right asses, you know, who have no right to talk to people in the way they did. But maybe that was a sign of the times. And I don't think maybe that would be acceptable in this day and age. But then 
who knows? Who knows? Right, Claire, time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record Ooh. box. All the questions are on 45 sleeves. I'll dip into the box. You say when. I'll pull them out, OK? So I'm going in. When? What are the most important tools in a DJ's armoury? It has to be your voice, I think. And that's not to say you have to have a great voice for radio. I think it's it's not... it's. It's how you use your voice. And when I started, accents weren't actively encouraged. I, in fact, just off on a tangent, I heard an early recording of myself a few weeks ago, I think on an air check download on Twitter, part of the Simon Bates show. And I was doing a little book review and I sounded like a little squeaky Princess Diana. Very, very like that. I was like, what, what, who's, who is that? So it's, it's, it's not so much how you sound, it's how you use your voice. So uh, what I'm trying to say, just try and be natural, try and be authentic and try and be open and honest. Try not to be too, I say try not to be too fake. I think when I started, you know, you're trying to be something you're not. You're trying to be good and you think you're not good. So you're trying to be good and in trying, you're trying so hard. So yeah, it's authenticity in your voice and just your if your love and knowledge of what you're talking about can come across, then I think you'll you'll be okay. That's a very that's a very waffly answer. So I think the most important tool is your voice and your understanding of of who's listening as well. If you can identify with who's listening, that one person, and if they can identify with you, then you should be okay. Brilliant answer. Back into the box for your second okay. question. Say when. <laughs> Now, quick, there, there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How much do you prepare? It's interesting, actually. With something like the request show, not much preparation at all because we start and it's completely empty. There's a slight panic. Oh, so now this is commercial radio, which is very different to what I tr where I trained, where I began in, in the BBC, whereas we're very much governed by sort of sections between ad breaks, live reads. We do work closely with advertisers and with sponsors. So, I mean, for a start, you have to make sure, you know, the adverts are ready, your sponsors, if you've got any sponsors or your live reads are in place. And also bearing in mind that with the classic rock party and Friday night 80s, a lot of the songs I'm playing are the same songs, just different order. You know, I'm not playing any new music. So I'm preparing by, you know, working out what to say about the song that I'd be playing for the bazillionth time this year. So a lot of preparation for me goes in just making sure that whatever I'm saying is engaging the audience to keep listening to the 80s greatest hits, which they've heard. They've heard, you know, probably the same songs three weeks ago. So yeah, preparation as in, I mean, it's difficult to talk about yourself. I think you've had this conversation with people before about how it's an art to learn how to talk about yourself on the air. So there's always a couple of things I want to mention that I've seen or heard or experienced, and then your content will come from your listeners. So yeah, so preparation, I think for my 80 show and my, and my my rock party, you know, a few hours beforehand, sitting down, making sure, you know, my live reads and, you know, keep the advertisers happy and then content for, for people to try and identify with. Yeah, it, it is a conversation that's come up time and time again on this podcast yeah. with radio DJs. Christian O'Connell in particular talked about how hard he used to find it um, to talk about himself. 
but once he got more comfortable with it, it, it changed his world completely. Yeah, he. I mean, that's a really good example. I, I worked with Christian at XFM and and at Absolute, and you know, he is. I mean, he's the king of making radio personal. I mean, you know, you are totally part of his life, his kids' life, the dog's life. I mean, you're very much part of his world and he's good at it. But he's also, I mean, he's funny. I mean, you know, he just he did stand-up as well. I mean, he's a, he's a comedian. So, I mean, he is the king. It's difficult when you're not a comedian. <laughs> and I'm not a comedian. Same. And I, and I think you probably agree. It's, it's trying to get that warmth, that warmth through. And again, it's a cliche, but radio is so intimate and you are talking to that one person. So if that warmth can come across, if someone can identify with what you're saying, and actually, can I just, we've just had Mental Health Awareness Week, which we, we all go very big on at Absolute. And we, we try and, I don't know, it's about talking about how you feel. And we were very much encouraged, if we felt happy to, to talk about our mental health. In fact, we had a couple of shows where we really opened up and that was... That was hard work, but the response has been so amazing. It really, again, brought home to us how important being open and honest is and how people get so much from it. I mean, I know for a fact that Paul Sylvester has taken phone calls from people, from listeners who I wouldn't say are on the verge of doing something terrible, but are, are certainly on the edge, you know, because they've been listening and and they felt they need to talk to people and they come to Absolute Radio because they feel that we will listen to them because of what we're saying. So, I mean, that is so important. Yeah, so so again, I, you know, I can talk about, you know, going to the shops or what I've done in the garden or, you know, Mr. Sturge upstairs, you know, and, and whatever. We, we talk, you know, we talk about our lives because that's what people like because then they can talk about their lives. And they message you and then you've got more content. So it's it's a give and take. A give and take. It works together. <laughs> for sure. All right, back into the box for question three, Claire. Okay. Have a rummage. Yeah, that one. That one. <laughs> uh, what's the best gig you've ever had? The best gig I've ever had? Oh. Well, I mean, I suppose I should say my, you know, my early shows on Radio 1, but I, I think... I think the early days, the first year at XFM was was the most fun. So yeah, that that first year in '97 into '98 at XFM was the most fun, the most unbelievable, the most I can't believe we're getting away with it. Oh no, hang on, we haven't got away with it. Year that yeah, that the best time of my life, and I was working. I mean, a lot of people ask me about Ricky and Steve, and I don't often talk about them because. You know, it's a very small part of, you know, my life. But they, Ricky in particular, made it hilarious. And this, you know, this was, he was entertainment's manager at Yulu and then had a speech at XFM. He had, he had no idea what he was doing, but he was a funny guy and he made us laugh. And when we were upset, I remember I went through quite a tough breakup at the time. Him and his partner, Jane, they took me out and cheered me up. I mean, he's a good guy, you know, so it was a great, it was a great year. Best gig ever. Yeah. That's a lovely story. Back into the box. Go on then, dive in, dive in. There you go, that one. Thank you. Question four, this is, have nerves ever got the better of you? Well, I tell you what I did once for Radio One in the, again, in the early days, I'd never done anything like it before. What were they thinking putting me, putting me on there? We did Meatloaf at Wembley Arena and we took the gig absolutely live 
more fool us. And they had me on the side of the stage broadcasting live on Radio 1 to introduce Meatloaf live. So, I mean, it was time to, well, I thought perfection. So I had all the OB trucks outside counting me down. We saw Meatloaf walking up to, to walk on stage. So I did my my rehearsed intro and then he turned around and walked back down again. So I had to fill. Suddenly I had to fill. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I literally had been doing the rock show for a few months. I didn't know how to fill. To this day, it, it just went blank. So I don't know even know what I said. But I, I kept talking. Words came out of my mouth. I have no idea what they were. And I really hope there's no, there's no evidence out there of what I said. And then he came back upstairs and just sort of bustled by me and, and went on. Off he went. That's the name for your book, Claire. The Left Hanging by Meatloaf. I know. I know. He made up for it several times. I, I interviewed him a few times after that and he was always adorable. And uh, yeah, so he did make up for it. But I was like, what are you doing walking upstairs and then walking back down again? What? But yes, I did the same sort of thing for we took Metallica live as well. <laughs> On Radio One, why do we do this to ourselves? But they were very, but they're far more organised. So when they say they're going to come on, they came on. So that was a lot better and a lot noisier as well. I seem to remember. But yeah, so I think that was quite terrifying. Yeah, massive gigs to have done. To. A final question from the box. Go on, dive in. I'll have that one, please. Your fifth and final question from the box is: How does being a DJ make you feel? Oh, it makes me feel very lucky that I'm still doing it. My first. My first show, Chris, was 30 years ago. So I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky that I'm still doing a job for this long and getting away with it. (laughs) Very lucky. Radio is such an amazing thing to work in. And yeah, it makes me lucky. It makes me happy. Every day it makes me happy that I can work with my voice. I never in a million years when I was at school thought that I'd be able to work with my voice. Can I tell you, I went, I went, my first ever job interview when I left school, I saw the advert in our local paper, the Salisbury Journal. They were looking for people to be the voice of directory inquiries. So basically answer the phone for directory inquiries. Are you old enough to remember that, Chris? Directory inquiries? Yeah. And by the way, Claire, yeah, I've if it's thirty years, wow, because I remember listening to you and loving you on Radio God. One when when I was uh, a lot younger when, than when I you am. were like a little babe in arms, clearly. <laughs> but no, so if my only. first job interview was for Directory Inquiries, and they offered me the job on the spot. So I remember thinking then, oh, oh, because they they said your voice is amazing. You, you can st- can you start tomorrow? And I said no, actually, because it looked really boring. I thought I don't want to do that. It looks really boring. But that was the first indication. Oh. So you can, you, you could maybe work in, in, you know, with your voice. But then I, I didn't, I didn't connect the two that that could mean radio or voiceovers. But no, I feel lucky. I feel very happy to work in radio. And I really, really, what I want to do now is try and encourage other people to come into radio because obviously there's so much now with podcasting and with Instagram and, and, and so many things where you can use your voice. But radio for me is still so special and I don't get the inquiries. I used to get so many emails about like, I really want to work in radio. Can you tell me what you did? And I don't get them anymore because people can just go off and make a podcast or go and, you know, create their own content, their own vlogs. Um, and I wish I, I still wish I got those messages going. How did you, how did you get into radio? Because I love radio. I would love to do a little, I don't know, go around sixth form colleges 
and talk to youngsters about how radio, I think, is still a viable option. Come and work in radio. It's great. There are just fewer and fewer places to, to learn the trade. Absolutely. I, I think that's that's the problem. So aren't we lucky that, you know, podcasts exist? And aren't we lucky that you can just go and do it yourself now? Radio is still special and I'm very happy to work in it still. After all these long years, Chris, been a long time. <laughs> I've got one last question for you, Claire. It's the end of the world and you have to play the last three records on earth. What would those records be? That's just horrific pressure, isn't it? And of course, you know, obviously they would change if the world ended today to if the world ended tomorrow. So today I would have to get some David Bowie on. Something like, I tell you what would be good, something like Life on Mars, because the way that song ends, the the dramatic sort of, you know, um, sort of piano and orchestral. So Life on Mars, David Bowie would be one of my final three. would have to have something like just something to calm everyone calm down everyone it's not the end of the world oh no sorry it is um okay here's pink floyd comfortably numb numb. always sort of you know and then i would want to listen to something like the clash london calling which is my go-to if i just need if i just need to be uplifted the clash london calling or or i know i'm stretching into the fourth now something like stevie nicks edge of 17 who would win stevie got yeah get stevie nicks edge of 17 those would be my three Excellent choices. Thank you, Claire, so much. This has been brilliant. Thank you. Sorry, I feel I've waffled a little bit, but there you go. There's loads I haven't said. We'll do a, we'll do a part two one day. <laughs> All right, done. <laughs> Deal. Thank you so much, Claire Sturgis, and that was How to DJ. Hold up. 